Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to the Stone Pages Archaeology News Podcast number 255. I'm your host, Philip Hansen. Now, I hope that you're all having a very great day today. The weather for me has been typical English weather, very, very rainy all day long, so I've been inside drinking coffee and recording the podcast for you guys. Now, we do have quite a lot of news to get through today, but there is one important point that I would like to raise before we get into the news. Now, as I'm sure you already know, December is a month of fundraising for a various amount of activities, and we here at Stone Pages are no exception. This is mainly in regards to the server where the Stone Pages website is hosted and managed. This includes our bulletin as well as our podcast, and we do not have any means of income on our own, so we must ask for your help, that is you, the listener, or the reader of our news story, to help balance our expenses. If you appreciate what we do or any of our services, please do visit news.stonepages.com and click the orange PayPal button on the right column. Any donation, no matter how small, will be of great help. Now, I would of course like to extend a very heartfelt thanks to all of the readers who have already sent in donations. These being Harold Henriksen, Robert Oldham, Adam Hagerthorne, Donna Kramer, John Bullock, Laurel Jameson, Karen Lockett, Peter Walker, Maura Allen, John Swenson, Carol Hughes, Miss Curtis, Gail Brownrigg, Brian Ivey, Patty Chateau, Lisa Scarlett, William Chase, Sean Corbridge, Ian Sinclair Boyd, Donna Carter, and last but certainly not least, David Lambert. Thank you to all of those people who have donated to the Stone Pages news website. And this is just over the last two weeks, which covers roughly about 40% of our expenses. Again, if you choose to donate, a heartfelt thanks from both me and I'm sure Diego as well. Now, on to the news, which we do have a lot of today, and of which I've tried to keep at least one slightly Christmas-themed. All of these stories that we cover today are, of course, gathered from various sources around the web, and to view those sources, you can go visit news.stonepages.com, where you can view the sources for all of these stories, as well as any other stories that we may have missed. Now, starting off, we will, of course, be going to Stonehenge, where we find out that it's actually a second-hand monument, or could possibly be. Then, from Stonehenge, we go to southern China, where we elaborate on a story that we covered in my first podcast as a host. Woohoo! Then we go to France, where arms have been amputated and thrown in a hole. I'll give a hand to the French archaeologists. Then up to Orkney, where a Bronze Age settlement has recently been discovered. Then we go to France again, where we look at cave art from Koski. Then we will just be going around Europe in general, where we find out that early farmers actually used the honeybee eight and a half thousand years ago. Now, going back to the main story, Beletsa has also been doing some work apart from his own studies around the Tibetan Plateau. He has also been working together with a team of archaeologists from China who have excavated a handful of sites around the area. And going from Tibet, let's stay in the mountainous regions and go to Chile instead, where we'll be looking at some of the oldest stone tools in Americas. And now for one of the most ancient Stone Pages traditions, the token Stonehenge news story of the week. This one concerning its bluestones specifically and where they originated from. Now, while it has been known for quite some time that the inner horseshoe of Stonehenge is made out of imported rock from Wales, namely bluestones from Versailles Hills in Pembrokeshire, 
which is around 140 miles to the west of Stonehenge, archaeologists have recently made a discovery that might change how we think about these stones. The assumption, so far as I can see, is that the rocks were immediately brought to the area for the specific purpose of building Stonehenge. However, the recent findings may change this idea. The findings consist of a series of recesses and rocky outcrops from Karn Groodok and Craig Rossi Felin, sorry if I mispronounced those names, which are just to the north of the hills that matches Stonehenge's bluestones, both in size and in shape. Apart from this, there has also been findings of similar stones that prehistoric builders could have left behind, as well as a form of loading bay from where these stones could have been dragged away. Now, while these finds are very cool and actually give an indication as to where the stones may specifically have come from, in itself, it doesn't really amount to much. However, what is very interesting is the dating of the stones. This is explained by Professor Mike Parker Pearson, who is the director of the project, as well as a professor of British later prehistory at the University College London. Professor Pearson explains that we have dates of around 3400 BCE for Craig Rossu Felin and 3200 BCE for Karen Goed Duck, which is intriguing because the bluestones didn't get up at Stonehenge until around 2900 BCE, adding that it could have taken those Neolithic stone draggers nearly 500 years to get them to the Stonehenge, but that's pretty improbable in my view. It is more likely that the stones were first used in a local monument somewhere near the quarries that was then dismantled and dragged off to Wiltshire. Now, while it is tempting to use this new dating to say that Stonehenge is older than it really is, Professor Pearson has another explanation saying that it is more likely that they were building their own monument in Wales and that somewhere near the quarries there is the first Stonehenge and that what we're seeing at Stonehenge is a second-hand monument. Professor Pearson also mentions that it is possible that the stones were taken to Salisbury Plain around 3200 BCE and that the giant sarsens, which are silicified sandstone found within 20 miles of Stonehenge, were added much later. Now, the big thing about megalithic monuments is, of course, the large amount of stone needed for it. You know, no duh, right? But I have always thought of the megalithic monuments like Stonehenge to be carved out kind of like you see marbles carved out for the Acropolis. Car no, taken in blocks, put down, carved into the general shape, and then rolled off to wherever they need to. The quarries from Wales, however, show that this might not be the case. Here I will let Professor Pearson take over as he has a very good explanation for it. He says that it's the IKEA of Neolithic monument building. The nice thing about these particular outcrops is that the rock has formed 480 million years ago as pillars. So prehistoric people don't have to go in there and bash away. All they have to do is get wedges into the cracks, you wet the wedges, it swells and the stone pops right off the rock. Now that is a very good explanation and is a lot easier than the explanation that I think of no news as of whether or not the Welsh were the first to invent the Swedish meatball yet. I think we'll uh, have to wait for further results though. Now on a more serious note, the big question is then that if some of the stones from Stonehenge are in fact second hand and from another monument, then where is this other monument? 
Professor Kate Wellham from Bournemouth University says that it is very likely that the older monument lies between the two megalith quarries, which makes perfect sense. She says that we've been conducting geophysical surveys, trial excavations, and aerial photographic analysis throughout the area, and we think that we have the most likely spot. The results are very promising. We may find something big in 2016. And of course, when that big thing happens in 2016, you can hear about it here first on Stone Pages. Just to round this story off, Professor Pearson actually mentions one of the latest theories of Stonehenge, stating that we should see Stonehenge as a monument of unification, bringing together people from across the many parts of Britain. This is in reference to people from Madagascar and other societies which are known to have moved very large standing stones and erected them as part of a very big ceremony which would bring communities together from afar, kind of like a megalithic Olympics of sorts. And now we return to southern China where we re-examine one of the news stories we looked at two podcasts ago, namely the discovery of the 47 human teeth from southern China. Now, I won't be covering a lot of the base details as we kind of cover that in podcast number 253. And if you want to know a little bit more about the site, you can go listen to that podcast or you could go to news.stonepages.com where you can find the source for that story. However, I will just give you a very quick rundown to place the teeth in a kind of context for you. The teeth were found in a cave and are believed to have been from bodies that were dragged there by wild animals. However, they were very old and could not be dated by just radiocarbon, so they were dated using other dating methods to be between 80 and 120,000 years old, which places them about 30 to 70,000 years before modern humans went into Europe. Now, Dr. Wu from the Chinese Academy of Sciences, as well as the rest of his international team, have done further studies on the teeth. The teeth, as I mentioned, are mostly of mammals and humans. The fossils from the mammals are quite typical of fossils from the late Pleistocene in southern China. The teeth make up about 38 species, including five extinct large mammals. The 47 human teeth are believed to be from at least 13 individuals. Now, the human teeth are typically smaller than other late Pleistocene specimens from Africa and Asia but they are closer to the European late Pleistocene samples and other modern humans. This data, to quote Dr. Wu, fills a chronological and geographic gap that is relevant for understanding when Homo sapiens first appeared in Southern Asia. The Daosan teeths also support the hypothesis that during the same period, Southern China was inhabited by more derived populations than Central and Northern China. The evidence is important for the study of dispersal routes of modern humans. He goes on to add that we hope our Dawson human fossil discovery will make people understand that East Asia is one of the key areas for the study of the origin and evolution of modern humans. Now the big question is of course, why are the humans in southern China so long before they're in Europe? And what factors could have contributed to this late migration to Europe? The co-lead author of the study, Martin Torres of University College London, has a suggestion. He suggests that our species made it to southern China tens of thousands of years before colonizing Europe, 
perhaps because of the entrenched presence of our hardy cousins, the Neanderthals in Europe, and the harsh, cold European climate. Now to Martin Torres, I would say I agree with you, and it seems like a very reasonable idea, but I would also argue that not much has changed in Europe temperature-wise, or at least not in Northern Europe. And now from our story in China, we will go to France, where a 6,000-year-old grave is giving archaeologists a hand and also shows signs of early trophy-taking in Europe. The grave in question is a circular pit grave, which is very common throughout Europe. However, what is not common and is special to this case from France is the level of violence seen in the grave, namely in the form of amputated arms that are buried below some other bodies. This is the result of research done by a French team consisting of Fanny Chenal, Bertrand Perrin, Hélène Barand-Emam, and Bruno Bulstein. I'm sorry if I mispronounce your names who studied some of the graves that were found during an excavation in 2012. According to the researchers, the perpetrators of this violent act hacked off the arms of several individuals and buried them at the bottom of a pit. Above the arms was placed another group of people, all of which except one had both of their arms. The upper layer of the grave also contained the fragment of an infant's cranium. Now I just want to forewarn people that now we get to the boring archaeological talk of context and stratigraphy descriptions on a very loose firm. So be warned, this next bit might be a little bit tedious, but we will go- come through it nonetheless. The grave itself is known as Pit 157 and has a layer of six adult arms and one child or adolescent arm with scattered hand bones buried at the bottom. Above this layer is a layer of burials with complete skeletons except for the missing arm of one skeleton of two women, a man, and four children ranging from about 2 to 4 years old to about 10 to 13 years old, as well as the skullcap of an infant. The pit is 2 meters deep and 1.5 meters wide in diameter at the bottom of the pit and 1.9 meters in diameter at the top of the pit. There is also the eighth body of a woman, which was deposited at the site sometime after the other seven burials were done. When questioned about the amputated arms specifically, Dr. Chanel said that she does not know why the separate arms were buried underneath the other people's remains, but her team assumed that they were most likely all of the same social group, but were treated differently. Along with this, the team of researchers wrote that Pit 157 represents clear evidence of what was probably an act of intergroup armed violence, that is to say, war, although the true nature of these practices remained difficult to understand. They added that interpreting this unique case is not easy, as to our knowledge, no other examples of amputation or even of isolated articulated limbs has ever been recorded for the late Neolithic period. Now, it is important to note that the archaeologists did not immediately assume that this was an act of war. Other contexts were considered, such as funerary practices, which could include human sacrifice or the destruction of prestige goods in the form of human arms. However, they do conclude that the amputated arms, most probably trophies, are suggestive of an act of war. The presence of women and children in the pit does not go against this hypothesis. They may have been victims of raids killed on the scene of the confrontation or captured and executed afterwards. 
apart from the limbs being taken as trophies, it is also speculated that this was a sign of torture or amputation after death meant to either offend the dead in question or intimidate the living people of the area. Dr. Chanel states that trophy taking has been known in almost all cultures around the world and still occurs even today. Now, I would like to congratulate the team of researchers. As with most prehistoric archaeologists, they have the best sense of humor when it comes to articles. They have actually published this research in uh, antiquity in an article called A Farewell to Arms, a deposit of human limbs and bodies at Bergheim, France, circa 4000 BC. And from France, we go north, specifically to Orkney, where Bronze Age settlement has recently been discovered on one of the islands. I must admit that I do love how the article starts out. It states that in the very poor weather on Monday the 7th of December, which, from what I've heard of Scotland, as well as England in general, is par for course. It would have been more newsworthy if it actually had been good weather uh, for once, but never mind that. Anyways, on Monday, the 7th of December, four archaeologists went out onto one of the islands to examine what they believed to be an eroding cairn on one of the Orkney Islands. Now remember, as with anything else, looks can be very, very deceiving. And in this case, it turned out to be a very early Christmas present for the archaeologists in question. Because what they believed to be the top of a substantial cairn made out of stones as well as a circular spread of stones nearby, led to the unexpected find of a large number of plow points, stone mattocks, stone bars, hammer stones, and stoneflake knives, as well as sections of stone walls and uprights that were clearly part of a Bronze Age house. And then, just a few meters away, another feature such as this was seen, also covered by a mass of tools, and the day just kept getting better. In fact, just a few meters away, another feature such as this was found also covered with a mass of tools and further Bronze Age features were found as the archaeologists walked along the sand. Now while the find itself is very much like a Christmas present to the archaeologists just in the amount of stuff found in a single area it is also important in furthering the knowledge of the Orkney Islands during the Bronze Age of which very little is known. This is best summed up by Professor Colin Richards of Manchester University, who says that after a long history of excavating the large late Neolithic settlements or villages, most recently the Ness of Brodgar and Links of Noland, we now possess a detailed understanding of Neolithic life in Orkney. But what happens in the following Bronze Age period is a bit of a mystery. Hopefully these finds will help archaeologists solve the mysteries of the Bronze Age as a total of 14 structures were found which were distributed over a kilometer, all of which emerged from beneath the massive sand dunes that formed in the 2nd millennium BCE. This revealed a Bronze Age landscape which was composed of both houses and structures as well as working areas. Professor Jane Downs of the University of the Highlands and Islands stated that this must be one of the biggest complexes of Bronze Age settlements in the Scottish Isles, rivaling the spread of hut circles in other parts of mainland Scotland. As mentioned by Professor Colin Richards, the Bronze Age is most likely one of the least understood periods in Arcadian prehistory. However, the finds from this one island may help solve some of the mysteries. 
one of the things that can be said about the island due to the large amount of plow points shows that there was a dominance of arable agriculture at this time. It also confirms one of the oddities of the islands, namely the deposition of tools and houses after they were and so factor decommissioned. It is also worthy to note that other Bronze Age houses similar to the ones from this one island have been excavated on other Orkney islands. However, the scale of that discovery pales in comparison to the one found on Orkney. Now, the next story that we'll be covering is the cave art of Korski, which I actually didn't know about until I read this story. So I hope that you will find this story as interesting and educational as I did. For those of you like myself who don't know, the Koski Cave is located near Marseille and was discovered in 1985 by the scuba diver Henry Koski, but its paintings were not mentioned until 1991. The cave is very significant as it is the only painted cave in the world that has an entrance below present-day sea level and where cave art has been preserved from rising sea levels following the last ice age. Now, this cave would formerly have been several kilometers away from the shore and would have made up a series of limestone hills, but as of now, the entrance is actually 35 meters below sea level, and you have to go through a 110 meter gallery which slopes upward into the huge chamber that contains all of the artwork. The artwork in it itself is also very significant because it is the only Paleolithic art that is known in an area where none such art has been preserved. Koski is also one of the few caves where more than 150 animal figures have been located. There are drawings of many different sea animals and unusual numerous ibex and kamoi. There are also known hand stencils which now total about 65, which is the third highest concentration in Europe. Following superimposition of the cave art, it has been possible to divide the art into two separate phases. The earlier phase includes mostly hand stencils and finger tracings, while the animal paintings and engravings belong to the later phase. This has been further supported by radiocarbon dating, with the date centering around two main dates, that is 19,000 BP and 27,000 BP, uh, that is before present, and before present for radiocarbon is generally counted as being before 1950. Now, in 2002 and 2003, all of the drawings in the cave were measured, sketched, precisely located, and the characteristics of their surroundings were recorded, which also corrected many of the earlier errors and also discovered a number of additional images. In grand total, there is now 177 figures of 11 different species, two more species than seen at Lascaux, and only three fewer than at Chauvet. The amount of drawings are as follows, which is going to sound like a very bad and imprecise recount of the 12 days of Christmas, but here we go. There are 11 horse, bison, auroch, ibex, kanwa, saiga antelope, red deer, megalorisis deer, feline, auk, and seal drawings. There is one human with a seal head, 65 hand stencils, 216 geometric signs, 20 unidentified animal figures, three composite animals, and other figures. There's also, of course, phallus pictures. Other male and female sexual symbols were also found in the cave, which includes natural hollows on the wall that are marked with black, representing the female sexual organs. There are also handprints of children, which have been observed two to two and a half meters or more off the ground, 
even in the deeper parts of the cave. Also, a partridge in a pear tree. No, not really. I couldn't stop myself. I'm sorry. <laughs> Apart from the cave drawings, there was also found charcoal from fires and torches, as well as a few flint tools. The rare objects also include a large scallop shell in which a big live coal had been put, as well as a piece of clay that bears traces of fingers and fingernails, as well as a calcite plaque used as a makeshift lamp. Sadly, most of the cave is now underwater, with only about 20-25% to 25% being above it. But Koski is still a very important site, and is believed to be one of the most important cave art sites in Europe, comparable to Lascaux, Troiferie, Alta Maria, or Charvet, and is believed to have originally contained four to 800 animal figures in the cave. And now for a story fit for anybody with a sweet tooth, it has been recently discovered that bees were actually exploited for their honey about eight and a half thousand years ago. While it has been known that bees have been an integral part of human society since the Stone Ages, it has been unknown as to what extent they were used. It has been inferred that prehistoric rock art portrays some honey hunters, but any association with early farmers and honeybees have been very uncertain. However, this association has finally gained some ground by way of chemical analysis of potsherds. The analysis was done on more than 6,000 potsherds from 150 archaeological sites, which has gathered evidence for the presence of beetroot wax in pottery vessels from the first farmers of Europe. While the finds from Europe may indicate how widespread the use was, the oldest known use of beeswax in cooking pots was found from a site in Turkey which dates back to the 7th millennium BCE. This is the oldest evidence yet for the use of bee products by Neolithic farmers. The lead author of the paper, Dr. Melanie Ovafed Salk, said that the most obvious reason for exploiting the honeybee would be for honey, as this would have been a rare sweetener for prehistoric people. However, beeswax could have been used in its own right for various technological, ritual, cosmetic, and medicinal purposes. For example, to waterproof porous ceramic vessels. Professor Evershed also says that the lack of fossil record of the honeybee means it's ecologically invisible for most of the past 10,000 years. Our study is the first to prove unequivocal evidence based solely on a chemical fingerprint for the paleoecological distribution of an economically and culturally important animal. It shows widespread exploitation of the honeybee by early farmers and pushes back the chronology of human honeybee association to substantially earlier dates. That being said, there is a small footnote that needs to be made here. There is no evidence for beeswax being used at Neolithic sites north of the 57th parallel, which points to an ecological limit to the natural occurrence of honeybees at that time. And for those of you wondering, the 57th parallel covers anything from Scotland in England and north, as well as Jutland, which is mainland Denmark, and north, just to give you an indication of where this use stops. And now we have a very interesting story coming to us from Tibet about revering the ancient gods on the roof of the world as Tibet is known. Now, for once, we will actually not be talking about Buddhism when we're talking about the Tibetan plateau. We'll actually be going further back in time to the time where the deities that prevailed were 
the gods that were closely aligned to the stars, the moon, the sun, the planets, and celestial dragons. And this is in regards to the ancient kingdom of Shangsheng, which is an advanced culture that dominated the western and northern regions known as Upper Tibet. Now, for more than two decades, John Beletza, who is an archaeologist and historian from the University of Virginia, has been exploring this area of Highland Central Asia, where he has spent his time documenting the wealth of sites which include rock art, castles, temples, residential structures, as well as other features along the Tibetan Plateau. Now, when you think about it, it is amazing that a culture could live so high up, especially considering that they didn't have the advantages of modern technology that we do today. And this is actually something that's explained by Beletza, who says that Upper Tibet of 1200 to 2500 years ago possessed a culture as advanced as any of its neighbors, at least in certain aspects. By many measures, monumental architecture, social complexity, irrigated agriculture, mining and interregional trade, this was a civilized order, a constituent part of the wider civilization of the Tibetan Plateau. This was a remarkable feat when we considered the great elevation averaging more than 4,500 meters, geographic isolation, and marginal climate of the region. Now, Beletsa describes that the civilization flourished in the time between 500 BC and 625 AD. And here, apart from the construction of monumental architecture and their irrigated agriculture, as well as their interregional trade, he also describes them as having mastered a strong equestrian culture and established links across Eurasia, which in itself is quite amazing because it is not something that's attributed to this region. Instead, civilizations that are as advanced as the one at Shangsheng are generally thought to have existed on the southerly and lower altitude Old World areas during the Bronze and Iron Age, as well as the advanced civilizations that we see in Central and South America. And placing it in this context is actually very important because it means that a civilization that we have rarely heard anything about as actually on the same level as civilizations that are known to build enormous pyramids that don't use any mortar at all where stones just fit perfectly together and to think of such a civilization existing and not hearing about it in itself is actually quite odd now going back to the main story Beletz has also been doing some work apart from his own studies around the tibetan plateau he has also been working together with a team of archaeologists from China who have excavated a handful of sites around the area. Here, Beletta reveals that tombs excavated in Guge, a region in Upper Tibet, date from circa 500 BCE to 400 CE. Ornaments, implements, household items, and ritual objects made of cast and worked bronze, copper, silver, gold, and iron have been collected. Turned wooden bowls, ceramic vessels, stone weights, semi-precious stone beads, wool textiles, silks, bone, ivory, and numerous other materials have also been discovered. Now, as with any archaeological site, as well as research, there are some very big challenges, and especially more so in Tibet than any other places, because apart from the lack of indigenous archaeologists, there's also a very uncertain political environment, and there's also an absence of a systematic way to catalog the plateau's archaeological sites, and the holdings on itself are few. In addition to this, Beletta also says that heritage is disappearing at an alarming rate due to large-scale development and organized looting. However, he is hopeful for the future, saying that a new generation of Chinese archaeologists, including those trained in the West, is eager to pursue exploration in Tibet. 
in the years to come, the continuing efforts should help us procure a better understanding of early civilization in Tibet and its unique achievements in the world. And to you, John Biletza, I say best of luck to you. I would love to help in that region. It actually seems a good way to excavate. Plus, you're so high up that I guess most of the fill just goes over the side of the mountain. So easy site cleanup as well. And now for our final story of the podcast, I suggest we go somewhere nice and warm like Chile, which is exactly where we'll go because Chile claims to have the oldest stone tools in the Americas. This comes as the results of findings of stone tools, cooked animal and plant remains, as well as fire pits around Monte Verde, which is a site in southern Chile and provides evidence that the earliest known Americans were established in the area more than 15,000 years ago. The area was explored by Tom Dillahay, who has worked the area since 1977. The excavations he has led in the area have provided a wide variety of evidence for small human settlement around the area, all of which use stone tool technology that predates the Clovis people about 1500 years. The finds include hearths, remains of local animals, wooden posts from approximately 12 huts, scraps of clothing made of hide, a portion of Macedon meat with the preserved with the DNA preserved, and even a human child's footprint preserved in the clay. There's also the possibility of much earlier human presence at a nearby site called MV1, dating back to 30,000 years ago. While the archaeological community was originally very skeptic about Dillahay's findings, subsequent excavations by other archaeologists in both North and South America have yielded more evidence supporting an earlier human migration through the Americas. And I'm sure that this includes the study we looked at last time in the podcast with the two 11,500-year-old infants. Now back to the original story, Dillahay's team recovered a total of 39 stone objects and revealed 12 small fire pits, which were associated with bones and some edible plant remains, which includes nuts and grasses. The bones are generally in very small fragments, broken and scorched, which indicates that the animals were cooked. They generally originated from larger animals, such as the prehistoric llamas or mastodons. Radiocarbon dated the finds to the age range of about 14 to 19,000 years old. Due to the wide scattering of the finds, it is believed that the people were nomadic hunter-gatherers who camped for only a night or so at different places before moving on. Dillahay says, where they're going, we don't know, and where they're coming from, we don't know. But this would have been a passageway from the coast to the foothills of the Andes. It appears that these people were there in the summer months. However, it should be noted that any kind of long-term occupation of the area was most likely not possible until about 15,000 years ago, when the climate warmed up enough to support occupation in general at the site of MV2. All in all, the finds do support an early occupation of the Americas, although there are still a lot of questions remaining as to how the hemisphere itself was settled. And with that story, we have sadly reached the end of our podcast. I don't know about you guys, but I thoroughly enjoyed the story about uh, the Koski cave art. I never knew that there was such an abundance of art just in one area wish I had a diving certificate now, would be a very cool place to visit. But that is neither here nor there. 
Of course, if you want to find the sources for any of the stories that we've covered here today, please don't hesitate to go to news.stonepages.com where you can find the sources for all of our stories as well as any stories that we may have missed. If you're an archaeologist that's on the go and needs his news ready whenever, you can follow us on Twitter using the Twitter handle at StonePages. Now, one final note before I do go, I will be holding a slight little Christmas hiatus as I will be visiting my family in Denmark until January next year. But fret not, the archaeology podcast will return in full force when I get back from Denmark. Until then, happy holidays, happy new year, and I will see you in 2016.